We're going to be in the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter. If you're new to Providence, uh, or if you're just checking us out, I, you should know, that you never know what you're going to get whenever it comes to our music. We sing songs that are 20 years old, we sing songs that are new on the radio, we sing songs that are 500 years old. All are, uh, all are out there and available for us so long as the goal is what we just said, to bring praise to God. That's what we're here to do. Uh, and that's, that's, that's the philosophy of our, uh, of our worship and our singing. That is what we are, that is what we are here to do. And uh, I appreciate so much what the, what the band did for us this morning. I'll be honest, um, I did not want to preach the message that I'm going to preach this morning for a lot of different reasons. So we're in 1 Peter. If you've been at Providence in the fall, then what you know is that uh, we were in 1 Peter throughout most of the fall and we've got one more sermon today to finish the book of 1 Peter. We're now, we're going to move right into 2 Peter next week, but we've got one more sermon to finish 1 Peter. We're going to cover all of chapter 5 this morning. And I tried as hard as I could to figure out how to preach this message before we got into all of our Christmas stuff. If you had a better pastor who was more uh, strategic in, in, in laying stuff out, I would have finished this the last Sunday in November before we got into all of our Christmas messages that we went through and all of our Advent stuff. Um, I just couldn't do it. The text wouldn't allow me. I couldn't cram too much stuff together. And uh, the, the, the overriding idea of the way that I preach is the text drives the preaching. Always the text drives the preaching. And so I tried to figure out how to preach this message before. And I just couldn't do it. So now we're coming in. We're going to pick up one last sermon in the, in the book of 1 Peter. Uh, and and uh, you, you can ask Jordan I, and, and some others. I, I wrestled with, with whether or not to preach this message this week because I feel like the first of the year we want to come charging out of the gates. And maybe there should be some other one than what 1 Peter 5 gets, gives us. But in the end, I said, no, this is what we're going to do. And the longer I stared at this chapter, the more relevant I realized that it was. And then this morning, as we sat here and sang these songs, and I listened to Jordan talk, and I listened to Matt talk, and I listened to the words of the song, I realized why God has this text for us this morning. Uh, because, let me tell you, what we just sang, every word of what we just sang is absurd. It's absurd what we just sang about. Now, maybe it didn't come across that way because maybe you know these songs, or maybe you don't, and you were like trying to track with the words, and you weren't really sure even what you were singing. But listen, the stuff that we just sang is absurd if First Peter is not true. We just sang, you give and take away, blessed be your name. The world looks at that and says, what are you talking about? Give me everything. I want it all. Matt stands up here and says, we're going to glorify God whether he gives us the promotion or whether we lose our job. Whether we get the diagnosis we pray for or whether we have to face the diagnosis we dread, we glorify God. That's absurd. It's absolutely absurd that we would say and that we would do something like that. Unless, unless what we continue to sing is true. And that that is, there is something else that is more important, that is bigger than any of those things, and that is the glory of God. And we are heading in that direction. 
But listen, if God is not real, if God is not good, and if the glory of God is not ultimate, everything else we've said this morning is, is absurd. It's absolutely ridiculous, and the world will tell you it's ridiculous if you live as though it's true. Because if you live as though it's true, it will change your life. If you don't believe me, let's look at 1 Peter chapter 5. Now, this is going to start in a really kind of a, a, a weird way. So the series that we're in is called Not Home Yet. It's this idea that we are all exiles. We are in a place that is not our home, and in this place, we will face suffering. We talked about suffering for months in the fall, because that's all Peter talks about in here. All of the, the theology he's given out, all the practical advice he's given out, all of it is about how to handle and how to deal with suffering, Right? The subtitle is here, An Exile's Guide to Waiting and Living. So the idea here is that Peter is, is preaching to these different churches. He's writing a letter to these different churches. And then by, by, by proxy, as I stand up here and preach and talk about what Peter has written, he is teaching us how to live in a world that is not our home. How to live in a world that is set against us. All right? So even if you've not been here all fall, there's, there's the background. There's the setting for chapter 5 which is going to make this really weird when I read this first part of chapter 5 because it doesn't sound like it fits at all. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. He says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, gain but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge but being examples to the flock and when the chief shepherd appears you will receive the unfading crown of glory likewise you who are younger be subject to the elders clothe yourself all of you with humility toward one another for god opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble now that's a weird passage for peter to put in here this is a weird turn for peter to make I want you to think about this for a second. He spent four chapters saying, life is about to get really, really hard for you guys, so hang on. Life is about to get miserable for you guys, so hang in there. The last chapter, or the last paragraph before this chapter, Peter says, the fiery trial has not come, but it is coming, so be ready. And then we go to chapter five, and he says, so, and what do you expect him to say here? Something about, so hang in there, so endure, so look to this or look to that. And instead, he starts giving a lecture about church structure. What in the world, Peter? What are you talking about? Let me, let me give you a little bit of a Bible study tip. If you're reading through a book of the Bible, and you feel like you're tracking along with the argument, you're tracking along with the, the case that the, the author is making, you're, tra you're tracking along with his school of thought, and then all of a sudden it kind of makes a hard right turn somewhere, and you're like, where did that come from? That doesn't make any sense. That is a great place for you to camp out, because there's probably a good reason why it's there. And if you can do the work to understand why it's there, there my experience is that's where you can find some of the most life-changing truths. Because when it gets you in a place where you don't expect it to show up, that's whenever you realize, oh wait, I had it wrong in the way that I viewed things. I had it wrong in the way that I saw this. Peter sees something here I don't see, so Peter, teach me. 
That's what we want to do this morning. We want to say, Peter, why are you doing this? Why are you saying this here? Why are you talking about elders? It, it just doesn't, it doesn't fit. It comes out of, out of nowhere. He, he's writing this letter. He's given some heavy doses of theology. He's, he's talked about uh, wives and husbands, slaves and masters, government authority and its citizens. Uh, it, it's a weird place to make the turn to talking about elders. And now whenever we talk about elders, we have elders here at Providence. There's uh, five of us. When we talk about elders, what we mean is uh, those charged with leading the church, right? Uh, so depending on your background and where you come from, that, that word elder may be completely new to you or maybe one you're very familiar with. Maybe you're more familiar with the word pastor and there was one senior pastor where you were at. For us, we do not have one senior pastor. I am not the, 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 the CEO, the head honcho. There's five of us, and all five of us have equal authority. We have equal, uh, we have, uh, equal responsibility for this congregation. I'm just the guy who's on staff who stands up here and teaches most weeks, all right? And Peter says that he's writing to the elders. Every, every, everywhere where the word elders is in Scripture, it's plural, it's not one single person. It's multiple people. If you want to know why that's really important, come to Providence 101, and we'll explain that. We'll walk through that and talk about that. Just know that this is what Peter says here. So when he's talking about elders, he's talking about the leaders of the church. That's who he's focused on here. And I think if you'll hang with me here through just a little bit of church structure stuff, I think what you're going to see is that what Peter has for us is very important for our church and its health, for you as you start a new year, and for how the Christian life is supposed to work. For us to make sense of these songs that we just sang that make no sense at all. See, here's what I've realized as I work through this chapter. Peter's turn to talking about elders feels like an odd transition to us. And do you know why that feels like such an odd transition? It's because we live in America. Because we live in America, and I can stand up here, and I can preach to you guys, and I am not worried about somebody busting through the door, throwing me on the ground, arresting me, and putting me in prison for the next 10 years. I'm not worried about that. I'm granted the freedom to do that, and I've, and I've, I've done it with no fear for, for over 10 years now. I'm not worried about that. It is not something that has me concerned. The person standing up and reading this letter to this house church would not have that same uh, luxury. So for us, the turn to elders brings into to mind some, some other things. It brings into mind somebody upstanding on a platform. It brings to mind somebody wielding power and somebody being in a place of, uh, of, of, uh, of power and influence. And Peter's going to make it clear that that's not what he has in mind whenever he starts talking about elders and pastors. That is not what he has in mind at all. For those in these churches that Peter is writing to that are about to endure some serious suffering, the turn to elders would have made perfect sense. They would have completely understood why Peter did it, if not completely expected him to do it. And the, that idea should, should kind of inform us in how far we have strayed from what the Bible talks about whenever we talk about church. 
You see, Peter's writing to these churches that, have, that are about to have all these trials come on them to this potentially shedding of blood that will be there uh, in, in, because of what they're doing, this fiery trial that is coming. And he wants to make sure that these, these folks that are in these churches, that they suffer, they're going to suffer, but if they're going to suffer, do it because they have done the right thing. This is all of chapter 4. You can go back and you can read chapter 4 and you see this. And he says, if you do so, you will share in the sufferings of Christ. You will be like Jesus. Now, the scene that I have in mind is this. So just go with me here. Kind of close your eyes if you need to. I want you to go with me. This letter shows up. Shows up by a courier. It's delivered to all these different churches. It's not written to one church. It's delivered to all these different churches. So most likely what happens is this letter arrives, and it's not going to be the messenger that stands up to read this. It's probably the elder of the church, one of the elders of the church, that will stand up in front of this house church on a Sunday morning, just like we're gathered on a Sunday. Maybe it was a Sunday afternoon, but a Sunday gathering, just like what we're doing, And the elder stands up in this house church, probably 15, 20, 25 people around, meeting secretly. These people have no money, no power, no position, no standing. What little they had, they've walked away from in order to follow Jesus. Their life is already hard. Peter's just said it's about to get harder. And then this elder stands up to read this letter, and he talks about suffering for doing good. He's reading a letter from from the Apostle Peter. And chapter after chapter, Peter is giving instructions about how to live in this world that is is set against them. He's giving practical tips. He's giving deep theology. And I wonder as this elder starts to read things about suffering and about the fiery trial that is coming, I wonder if the congregation doesn't start to look at the man that is reading these words and realize that this man, this elder, reading this letter to them is trying to prepare his congregation for the suffering that is about to come. And that when it comes, it will almost certainly start with the man that is reading the letter. It will almost certainly start with the leader of the church. And so the, the, the elder stands and he reads this and he starts reading about suffering for doing good and sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And I wonder if as he's reading this, the pastor's voice doesn't start to tremble just a little bit. I wonder if the pastor doesn't, doesn't kind of look up over the, 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 the edge of the, the, the scroll or the, 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 whatever he's got, whatever he's reading from, if he doesn't kind of look up kind of over the edge and kind of take a deep breath before he reads the next paragraph about suffering and the next paragraph about suffering and the next paragraph about suffering. I wonder if his hands don't start to shake just a little bit, if his heart doesn't start to race, if he doesn't start to sweat just a little bit. Maybe he takes a glance to the side and he sees his wife and his children standing over there. I wonder if this elder doesn't realize that he's a marked man and they're coming first for him. I wonder if the congregation doesn't doesn't hold their breath just a little bit and think if they come, they're coming for him first. They're coming for our leaders first. If persecution is coming, it's going to begin with the guy standing up front. Always. 
So when Peter says, so I exhort you elders, this term makes total sense. Because Peter is about to encourage those that would be first in line to die. I wonder if it doesn't make sense to them completely. He's looking at these elders and he's looking to give them some guidance because when it comes, it comes for them first. And Peter says, I'm not some bystander living off away and away from this persecution. I exhort you as a fellow elder, as one who stands in line with you and will be the first to go. Here's my exhortation to you. Now this turn makes total sense. It makes complete sense in light of all the suffering that he said is coming. So let me read verse 1 again. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. You can read that as a fellow sufferer and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So, rephrase this. So I, Peter... One who is also a leader and has a target on my back. I've seen how Jesus suffered. I know the suffering he has endured. I know what's coming for me. But I was also there when he came back from the dead. I was also there whenever he ascended into heaven. I was also there at Pentecost when the fire came down and we began talking and I preached and 3,000 people came forward and joined what we were doing and followed Christ and gave their life to him. So yes, I've seen the sufferings, but I know the glory that comes after it. I've seen the worst of it, but it doesn't compare to the best of it. I've seen Jesus' death, but I've seen his resurrection. That is his exhortation. That is what he is giving to you. He says, I know it's going to hurt, but I also know what comes next. Can't you just see Peter writing that sentence, looking back, reflecting back on all that he has seen over the last decade or two? It's almost like he's willing the elders on, hang in there because I know what's coming. It's a beautiful, beautiful verse. His exhortations make sense in light of the glory that is to come. Keep going in verse 2 and 3. He says, Now shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. He says, Care for the people in the church. Shepherd the flock pastor them. That's the same word. Care for, pastor them. That's the same word there. You are over them. You have real authority, elders. You have real authority that they have given you, the church has given you. But understand why you have that authority. Understand the purpose that it is to serve. Exercise oversight, but not under compulsion. Don't do this job because you feel like you have to, because someone made you, because you feel forced, because you feel like nobody else would do it. Because if that's you, then when the pain comes, when the police show up at the door, when the government comes to to persecute, whenever, whenever Paul shows up at the door, this is what would have happened just a few years earlier, whenever Paul shows up at the door and is, is ready to have you stoned, 
If you're just doing it because you have to, you're going to buckle. You're going to fall. There will be no sharing in Jesus' sufferings. And if there's no sharing in Jesus' sufferings, there will be no glory either. If you're caring for someone because you have to, you'll collapse when things get hard. And then he says, don't do it for shameful gain. Now, we don't know exactly what he's talking about here. He might be talking about for money, but I don't really think so because nobody in the church was making a whole lot of money back then. But you could apply that today. Don't do it for money. Don't do it for fame. Don't do it for attention. Don't do it for a platform. Don't do it for this shameful idea that says, I want it for me. If you want to be an elder so others will see you and think that you are something special, think you're some kind of super Christian, or because you think it's a ticket to being known or making money, you will fly away like a dandelion whenever the wind blows. You will not endure. You'll be what one missionary, C.T. Studd, which is the best name for a missionary ever, what he called chocolate Christians that melt at the smell of fire. You'll fall apart. No, you can't be an elder for those reasons when the suffering comes. Because those reasons won't make you stand up under it. And then he says, not domineering over those in your charge. Yes, you have authority. But Peter is saying, don't become an elder because you think you want power. You may have authority, but if it's power you came for, then you're going to be crushed under the weight of persecution because all your power will be ripped away from you. It'll be gone. All the notoriety, all the power, all of those things. Power, fame, money, reputation. Doing it because you felt like you had to do it. You can't be an elder if that's you because you'll break in a moment. And you can't break like that. Why? Because you are called to be an example to the flock. Verse 3. You have to endure like Jesus did. Share in his sufferings. Chapter 4. If you share in his sufferings, then in so doing, you'll give your people something to see and you will encourage them that you really believe the things you've been telling them. That you really believe what it is that you've said. That it wasn't just talk, it was real. Peter says, I'm right here with you. I'm enduring with you. Look me in the eyes, elder. Listen to me. Hear what I'm saying. Endure with me. Teach your people. And let me tell you why. Verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Let me tell you why you endure. Let me tell you why you pastor in this way. Let me tell you why you care for your church in this way. Because it will all be worth it. All of it. There is a crown that is waiting. Don't flinch. Don't falter. Don't run away. Don't melt. Endure. Persevere. Hold fast. There's a crown of glory that is coming that does not compare with what you are about to endure. So hold fast fast. I want to take just a second here to talk about the elders that we have here at Providence. Some of you may have been coming to Providence for a while and you may not even know who they are. That's a pretty good testimony that they are not here for shameful gain. They're definitely not doing it for money because they don't get paid a penny. Um, They don't toot their own horns. They're not here to wield power. 
I would not be your pastor if it weren't for these men serving alongside me. I would have tapped out. I don't pretend they're perfect. They are not. They'd be the first to tell you that. We haven't made every right decision or done everything perfectly, no matter how much we've debated or overanalyzed. Nobody knows how to handle this or that, the best way to do this or that. There's no, there's no textbook to how, to, how to how to be an elder in a pandemic. There's no textbook on how to be an elder and deal with whatever, church discipline, deal with any of this, these things. There's no, there's no perfect handbook on how to do all of it. What we've realized is that we all have no idea what we're doing. And I'm, not, I'm dead serious when I say that, and they would tell you too. We don't know what we're doing. But we're doing our best to follow what Peter lays out here. We're doing our best to try and say this. And I, I, I'm telling you, I'm not saying this as false humility. Like, we're working hard and doing the best we can with the tools and the gifts that God has given us. But here's what I know about these men, even though I can say that they are not perfect. At this point, we all know the job that we've signed up for. I don't know that we knew it whenever he said we'd do it, but we know, the, we, we, know, we know what we've signed up for. And we may not get it right every time, but I've watched these guys long enough now to know this. They will be first in line to die, and they won't flinch when it comes. That is our calling. Now, I say that like literally, but again, I'm not, we're not worried. That's easy to say when we're not worried about anybody coming through the door, right? But I can tell you that figuratively too. We will be first in line to die because that's the job description. We are the front line, not the front line because we're the biggest, strongest, and toughest. We're the front line because we're the first to go. That is what has been called. Our job is to take the bullets. Make the decisions that will inevitably cause friction. Have the hard conversations that others want to run from. Say the things that no one else wants to. Tackle the problems that everyone else leaves for someone else. The elders are first in line for those at Providence. That is what we do. Our goal as elders is that we sacrifice in order that the people of Providence flourish. That is our task. Where that does not happen, and it doesn't always happen because, again, we are not perfect, but where that doesn't happen, that is where we have failed. That's the job of our elders. Die so others can flourish. That's the goal. And listen, if you become an elder for any of these other reasons that Peter throws out there, you will buckle and run. So if you want to know the philosophy of, of having a, a group of elders here at Providence, that's it. That is our task. If you're here and you're, 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 you're just trying out Providence and you're just checking things out, know that that's our philosophy. That is our mindset. If you go somewhere else, if you decide, hey, this isn't the place, my, my exhortation to you would be find a church that believes the Bible and has a pastor and elders who exist in order to serve. That is what you want. Who will, who will relinquish platform and and power, and all of these things, if it means you will flourish. Goodness, again, don't hear me saying that we got this down because we don't. I fell in so many ways, and that's just the ones that I know of. 
If I were to like open, open it to the floor, y'all could tell me a hundred I don't even know about. Like I, I realize how that works. Just know this. And let me just say this as, as the, the pastor, the guy standing up here. But honestly, I think if, if any of these other guys up here, they would say the same thing. There is nothing I want in my heart more than for you to thrive in your life and for you to let everything in this world go because you realize it's nothing compared with the surpassing glory and grace of Jesus Christ. I will leverage everything I am. I will leverage my, my, my job, my position, my salary, my friendships, my words. I will leverage everything to see that happen in your lives. That's the calling. I've bet my life on it. And these other elders with me, they've all laid it out there too. So now you're thinking, good, I got off this week. I'm not an elder. This is for them. They can scribble in all their notes and we're good. We can move on and all is well. Well, first, let me just say, that's really important for you to know because here's the thing. I, I, I don't know if and when we'll, at some point, we'll, we'll, the elders will change and we'll have more elders. I don't, I don't know when all that's going to happen, but here's the thing. I want everyone in here, every man to be qualified to be an elder. Whether you are an elder or not, that's irrelevant. But I want you to be in a place where you would be willing to make that kind of call. And you would be willing to die. And everyone in here, whoever is, a, whoever is, is, is here and you are a part of Providence, you need to know that this is what you are looking for in an elder because you pick us. We are a congregationally ruled, elder-led church. And so what that means is elders make a lot of decisions, but in the end, the ultimate decisions are with the congregation. They are with the people of Providence. So you need to know that this is what an elder is called to be because you're the ones that pick us. So it's important for you. So if, if no other reason, that's relevant for you guys. But fortunately, we keep on going. And so now we're going to make a little bit of a turn. And this is going to move from talking about the elders to now talking about others. First Peter chapter 5, verse 5, he says, likewise. So what that means is, just like the elders that we just talked about, just like the, the, the humility that we have called them to, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He says, follow the example that has been set. Don't think too highly of yourselves. When you look to others for selfish gains and to gain some sort of like transactional uh, position or, or, or power over them, then, then what you've done is you have, you have moved from a place that is, that is honoring Christ to a place that is all about yourself. He says, take the lower seat and look to serve others. Church, do likewise. Do likewise with the exhortation that we've thrown out there for the elders. Do likewise. Don't make your relationships about transactions and what you get from those relationships. Make them about what you give and how you can lift one another up in the grace, uh, in the grace of God in the face of suffering. This is what Peter wants you to see and what you want. He keeps going. You might know these next couple of verses. These are some of the, the, the more oft-quoted ones from 1 Peter. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, 
because he cares for you. So he continues with this theme of humility, humbling yourself. And he throws out this verse about casting anxieties on him. Why does Peter tell us? Again, it's the same thing. He's preparing us. He says, I know that this must terrify you. I get it. It terrifies me too. Trust me. I can just hear Peter, if we were having this conversation with him, Peter saying, I get it, I've been there. I was there watching the sufferings of Jesus. And I was so scared that whenever a girl said, don't you know that guy? I cursed at her and ran away. I know what it's like to be afraid. I know what it's like to fear. I know what it's like to buckle. but I also know what it's like to know that Jesus cares. I know what it's like to be restored. I know what it's like for Jesus to come to me and say, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Do you love me? Then go and care for the people. I know what it's like to be restored and to be brought back. So you can give your anxieties to Jesus because he will take them. And he will care for you. This isn't some sort of like magic thing. I can't tell you, hey, if you struggle with anxiety, then, you know, memorize this verse and just keep saying it over and over. That's not the way the Bible works. But it's good to know that Peter, who has failed, who has endured shame, who has endured suffering, who knows suffering is coming for him, says, I know Jesus, and I know you can trust him. And I know that he'll listen and he'll take it whenever you give it to him. Give your anxieties over to him. That that word, that casting, that is not like a one-time give your stuff to Jesus. This is a daily over and over and over casting and casting and casting and casting and continuing to cast and giving more and continuing to give it all over and over and over, moment by moment, casting your cares, an ongoing action. And then Peter gives us some final but very relevant exhortations. If you're looking for some some, uh, New Year's resolutions, these aren't bad. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. He says, be sober-minded. Essentially, it means be awake, be alert. Because what's coming is no joke. This is not some simple thing. You have someone who is coming to destroy you. You have an enemy. A lion, a hungry, ready-to-pounce lion, and he will come at the first moment of weakness. Peter's warning is one to remind them this isn't just some sort of political reality that they are dealing with. There are unseen things happening that they need to be aware of. And then he encourages them that they are not alone in their suffering. Isn't it funny how that helps? It's something about knowing that there's someone else suffering alongside you that makes the suffering a little bit more doable. Anyone who's ever been on a team knows how this works. Any of y'all starting a new workout program, you look out a new workout program, look look up an article online that says 
Five tips for sticking with your New Year's resolution of a new workout program. Number one on any article is going to be get a partner. Do it with somebody. For all kinds of reasons, but they're going to say, get a partner. Don't do it on your own. Your odds of success are way higher if you're with someone. Not only that, working with a partner typically increases your performance, especially when you're the weaker one in the the group or in the, the, the pairing. The weaker team member is far more likely to make productive strides when they are in a group than when they are alone. So what does that mean? Why does Peter throw this out there about knowing that others are suffering with you? It means that you who are weaker need the church and you who are stronger, A, probably aren't as strong as you think you are, but the church needs you. So just because you think you can endure on your own does not mean that you should. One of my favorite movies is uh, is Gladiator. I love that movie. I don't know if y'all like that movie or not. I love Gladiator. And there's, 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 there's one time, uh, kind of an iconic scene when they're in the Colosseum and the slaves are about to face the gladiators for the first time and they're trying to figure out what's going on. And then what Maximus says is he looks at them and he says, whatever comes through those gates, we've got a better chance of survival if we work together. Do you understand? If we stay together, we survive. Friends, I don't know what's going to come through the gates in 2022. The last two years has taught us, if nothing else, that we have no idea what's coming. We have no idea what's coming or what we will have to endure or how we will have to do it. I don't know what, what lies ahead for the, for the economy. I don't know what lies ahead for any kind of pandemic. I don't know what's going to happen. But I know this. We have a much better chance if we stay together. We have a much better chance if we are together. When the suffering comes, and it will. I don't know what form, I don't know what it will look like, but when the suffering comes, your instinct will be to hide. It will be to retreat. It will be to draw back. I've seen it dozens of times in the time I've been a pastor. I've seen it because I've done it. The instinct is when life gets hard, it feels like the right move is to insulate yourself, to draw back, to pull away. But hear me, it is the absolute wrong thing to do. The lion goes after the weak and the alone. The ones that have strayed from the pack. Peter's exhortation is for us to stick together in the midst of suffering and to fix our eyes on what lies ahead. Namely, that after we have endured suffering, and this is it right here. This is what ties it all together. This is what makes all the stuff that we sang earlier, this is what makes it all make sense. It's the only way that we can sing what we sang earlier without it just being laughably absurd. This is where it all, he says, after you've endured suffering for a little while, that God will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. It is a beautiful promise. And here's the promise that I'll make you as an, as an elder, but as a, just being a part of this church. I will always be here for you. Whatever that means, however I can do it. But I'm going to need you to be there for me. And I'm going to need you to be there for, the, for, for, for someone else. You're going to need to be there for one another. It's why Sunday mornings are not enough. 
That's why you need to be in front porch communities and discipleship groups because you need to be in a place where you can say, I'm hurting, there's a lion coming after me, can you help me? I, I, I can see it, I can feel it, I'm tempted to retreat, I'm tempted to pull back, I'm tempted to run away, I need someone to help me endure, and then someone can say, I'm right here with you. I'll walk every step of the way with you, arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder with one another. And do you know what that's called? It's called being the church. That is what a church is. That's how a church is meant to work. And it's a two-way street. You can't just be like pulling away and be like, well, nobody was there for me whenever you were the one pulling away. You've got to go towards help and help has to come to you. This is how this works. This is the way the church is designed to work. And then what does Peter say? What does Peter tell us just in those last couple of things? He says that, that after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, that is what awaits us. That is what the fruit of endurance is. How can we say, blessed be your name? You give and you take away. It's because there is something bigger. There is something ahead of us. There is something more in front of us. And by God's grace, we are pursuing that with one another. That is the goal. Friends, we are not home yet. But together, we will wait, we will hope, and we will live in exile, betting our lives that Jesus is worth it all. And I hope you'll do that with me. Let's pray. Father, this morning it is our confession that we do not, we, we do not have the power to withstand the fiery trial that is coming within us alone. We need the hope of glory in the future. We need the promise that it's worth it all in the end. We need Peter's exhortation to endure. We need you to strengthen and establish us. And Father, I celebrate this morning that you have made that promise and that we can stand up under it so, Father, I don't know what's about to come through those doors for 2022. I don't know what's, what's lined up and ready for us. But I pray for a church that unites together arm in arm to walk through it all. Not for our glory, but for yours. Not for our fame, but for yours. Not for our comfort, but for, for our ability our ability to humble ourselves and come before you and say it's all yours. And because you are so great, it is worth it. Father, strengthen our hands. Make ready our hearts. Bend our knees. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.